0: I think it would be good to remind ourselves of a few things as we get started looking at this chapter today. First of all, it is good for us to remind ourselves that God Almighty, that Yahweh, is Israel's king, is Israel's savior and deliverer. In the passage that I looked at this morning as the call to worship from David, it says, the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, they're all yours, great God. All of these things belong to God himself. God is the one who gets the credit and who should get the credit for all of the victories, and in particular in this story, the victory over the Midianites. And... God was pleased to use in that process the flawed and man of mustard seed-like faith Gideon to accomplish this victory that we have described for us. The, The connection between what God has done and how he did it through Gideon is made clear for us. It's celebrated. Verse 28, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they ha- raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. And even in the very last verse, uh, it's talking about the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, all the good that he had done to Israel. God used Gideon. And I say that, and I want to emphasize that. These verses essentially say that and talk about the way God used them and talked about the good that he did. Because on the whole, what we're going to find in this chapter as we consider Gideon is that he is increasingly wanting in almost every action that we see him take before us. He is a man who is characteristic of the times in which he lived. And don't forget the very last verse of the book of Judges that describes the times in which he lived. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God used Gideon. Gideon did good, but Gideon also exemplifies the reality of that verse. No king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king, but there were leaders, there were rulers, there were these deliverers, there were judges whom God raised up during this period. There was the idea of a king There were examples of kings who were around them. There are obviously kings that are significant in this text that is before us here. People knew what a king was and could see how kings functioned in these various tribal groups that would... nations that would come in and oppress Israel at one time or another. And there was even, what we can see in this passage today, there was even the desire for king-like kind of person, some kind of dynastic leadership that would perhaps unify the increasingly fractious tribes of Israel, that would perhaps give them a a sense of camaraderie, a, a person around whom they could rally, a person and whose children could secure them together and lead to a greater identity and continuity for them. And it seems to them, as they have this desire, and as they look around at the kings they're familiar with, and mind you, the kings that they're familiar with are Canaanite kings, that's who's around them, it seems to them that Gideon fits the bill. We're looking for someone who he and his family, they'll take care of these things. And so we have then this call to Gideon at the, I think, the heart of this chapter, where the men of Israel, verse 22, said to Gideon, rule over us. A call that is going to morph in the next chapter into reign over us let's rule over us here, it'll be reign over us in chapter 9. And so what happens in Judges is we are forced to, or if you prefer, we're afforded the opportunity to reflect on leadership, to reflect on how one ought to lead the people of God? What are the kind of things that should characterize one whom we ask to rule over us? What kind of leadership do we actually need? And so today, taking that as the heart, this this desire to rule over us, I want to work through this passage by asking a couple of questions. One, who do we have to lead us? Who have we got who could lead us? Secondly, who do we need to lead us? And then third, a question and attempt to to kind of bring this home. Who ought we to be in light of that? And who do we vote for? So first of all, who have we got? Who do we have to lead us? Now, we're familiar with this in every in any election, we find ourselves at some point identifying possible candidates. And we consider people, we consider the the likelihood of someone not only to be a candidate for a particular office, but whether or not they could be electable. Could they actually win an election and be the person who would serve in an office? And sometimes we feel like there are too many candidates out there, and sometimes we feel like there are too few candidates who are available. And the Israelites, kind of in their situation where they are, look around, and the only candidate who comes to mind for possible dynastic-like, king-like ruler is Gideon. Gideon and his son and his grandson is their idea. But we ask the question, well, okay, if this is the man you've got, if this is your candidate, what are you saying about him? What's the character of this man? Who is he as he is revealed to us in the story as a whole and in this chapter in particular? And I said already that who he is, this guy who's been asked to rule over us, is increasingly wanting lacking in qualities that we'd like to see, in particular, in someone who would be a leader, a ruler over God's people. And instead of appearing to grow into the role, you know, you might have hope that, okay, this person isn't who we'd like to have now, but perhaps they'll grow into the position a bit. Instead, what we seem to see here is a devolution, a devolving of the character of Gideon as he increases in influence within Israel itself. So, so here's a couple of things, three that I want to highlight in particular. In a godly leader, and I'm going I'm to give it in a positive and then flip it over. In a godly leader, we would like to see someone who is prudent. We'd like to see someone who acts wisely and judiciously, When confronted by any number of problems, but we have Gideon. Now, we've got a number of episodes here, and I I trust you'll appreciate that I can't go into each of these episodes in perhaps the detail that you might find more interesting. You can think through these on your own. But let me just note here how Gideon is unwise in the actions that we see him taking. So the first thing that we see is this response to Ephraim. And this is a reminder from two weeks ago. So when the Midianites began to flee, then Gideon sent word to the Ephraimites, to Ephraim, and said, cut them off. Cut them off at the river. Don't let them get across the river. And the Ephraimites, the the tribe of Ephraim, does that. They they cut them off there, and they get two of the commanders. But Ephraim is kind of like, well, that's not quite enough. You know, it seems like we got the short shrift here. You should have called us earlier. We would like to have been, you know, part of the battle. We're Ephraim, after all. Uh, And and we would have liked a bigger role than this. So how do you deal with this if you're Gideon? So Gideon comes to them, and, and some, and I think there's a way we can look at this passage and see... Gideon at his diplomatic best. He's at his most savvy at this particular moment. He, he kind of acts in a proverbial type way. Answer a fool according to his folly. Okay, Ephraim is kind of being foolish here in what they're saying. Answer a fool according to his folly, or if you prefer, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Perhaps he's acting wisely here in the way that he says, listen, what am I in compared to you? You, you got these guys, you know, these... I might get the kings, but you got the guys who are really the commanders, the really tough guys. You, you got them. What am I compared to you? Well, it may be at his diplomatic best, and I can appreciate that, but at the same time, it seems to me in looking at this that we can also see Gideon being guilty of some false flattery in this and of not kind of revealing what the plan of God had been because the plan of God wasn't that every tribe should be involved. God was reducing, not increasing, the amount of participants in this particular battle. And and it really sounds to me like a false humility that is being displayed here by Gideon. It happens to work on the the tribe of Ephraim, so that's good, but it seems false. And then we continue on. We see the dealings that he's got with the cities of Succoth and Penuel, both of whom admittedly and clearly acted poorly towards Gideon, basically saying, listen, listen, the Midianites are not defeated yet, and until we see the Midianites defeated, we're not sure who's going to get the upper hand in this battle, so we ain't helping anybody until we see if they're really defeated, because you may lose, and if so, these guys are coming right back in, right behind you. And so they don't want to help Gideon. And Gideon responds in a way that as we look at it on the whole, it seems to be Gideon responding here not against Canaanites, but Gideon responding against Israel, Israelites, vindictively and disproportionately. So, for example, he says, I'm going to break down the tower in Penuel But not only does he break down the tower in Penuel, but in verse 17, he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city in a rage. And then, of course, we have this disturbing episode where he's got the kings of Midian there, and he attempts to have his young son execute them. And we don't have a lot of detail here, but just to imagine the scene that is there, and what he's asking his son to do and then the taunting that he gets back from the kings, it, it's just an ugly scene. And, and so we see a descent. And we, we had some questionable things in the last chapter and they continue to be a descent here making Gideon increasingly imprudent, unwise, unjust in the things that he's doing. We'd like a godly leader to demonstrate, in addition to being prudent, we'd like them to demonstrate for us humility as well. That's what David seems to do in the prayer that is before us here. And we're tantalized with a glimmer of hope of maybe Gideon being a humble man when he demurs the calling. In So I read the calling rule over us earlier when he demurs that in verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And that sounds good to us, right? That sounds orthodox. That sounds exactly what you should be saying. It is appropriately humble. The problem is the problem is that all of the actions that he takes after this, belie the words that he just spoke about the position that was offered to him and his refusing to accept that. In verse 21, he takes the ornamentation, the ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Now, what kind of ornamentation is on the necks of the camels of the kings? Well, royal ornamentation kingly ornamentation. He takes that to himself. He collected the earrings. He makes the ephod. He takes the ephod and he establishes the ephod. He sets up the ephod in his hometown of Ophrah. He seats himself in his own city. Verse 29, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Of course, he went and lived in his own house, except for the idea it might be more... He establishes himself there. He sits there, and you can come and visit him, the non-dynastic, non-king-like, non-ruler ruler king of Israel. He collects a harem of wives, concubines, and he names the son of a concubine... Abimelech, which means my father is king. So when you deny kingship and then have and you name your son, my father is king, you can kind of look at that and go, I'm sorry, I I might be missing something in what is actually taking place here. I, I question the sincerity of what you're saying. Humility does not characterize him. He's verbally denied kingship, but every action that he has taken is the action of a king, albeit a Canaanite king. He's acting like a Canaanite king. The fear that we saw in Gideon that characterized him so much in chapter 6. I noted then that it was lodged in his, his egotism, that focus upon himself, it wasn't a rich biblical humility. It was just that he was a man who couldn't look beyond himself. Well, that fear has now flopped. We've got the other side of that fear right now. It's the same thing, but now it's manifesting itself in personal ambition and pride and these actions that he's doing to kind of show off who he is to demonstrate his wisdom and his power and the ability that he has to take care of Israel's enemies. He's seeking, in other words, his own glory. He's not seeking to be a humble leader on behalf of Yahweh and point to the Lord. He's seeking his own glory in complete contradiction to God's requirements for a king articulated in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Don't turn there right now. You can look there later. It is almost as if the writer of Judges had Deuteronomy 17 open in front of him and was ticking off boxes. The boxes say that the king of Israel should not do this and Gideon does this. And it goes right down through the list to where this man is a man who, contrary to what God says, sets himself up above his brother or his brothers. So we would like a godly leader to be prudent. We'd like one to be humble. Gideon is neither of those things. We'd also like a godly leader, to be pure, to be holy, or at least to be growing in purity and holiness, but Gideon seems to be sliding down a slope of decay as opposed to ascending the holy hill of the Lord. His character and his family life are clearly a shambles here, as is significantly the impurity of his worship what should gideon have done at the end of the battle of midian now we don't have exact instructions from god on what he was to have done at the end of the battle of gideon but let's think for a moment of the book of joshua of, of the book of judges to this point what should he have done at the end of this battle well, what he should have done is set up some kind of a monument to the lord Right, set up a cairn. That's what we did in Joshua. You win a great victory over somebody, you set up a cairn. Or, okay, perhaps not, he should have set up an altar to the Lord. That's what he did earlier in the book. Remember, tear down those statues of Baal, those, those, those altars to Baal that are in your father's backyard, and, and set up an altar to the Lord and offer sacrifices on that altar. He should have offered sacrifices to the Lord. He should have done something to fulfill what God had said, make sure that I, not you, get the credit for this victory. That's what should have taken place. Instead, every action that he takes draws attention to himself, to Gideon, and the damnable ephod that he sets up. This Vestment, an ephod, we, we, we think of it a lot of times in association with the, the vestments of the high priest, a vest, an outer garment that would have been worn over the other robes that were part of the, uh, of the accoutrement of the high priest and his office. And Gideon establishes one here, an Israel horde after it, a horde after an ephod, and they kind of go what's up with that? How do you you whore after a golden ephod? What's taking place here? Well, think about this. Gideon has made this ephod, and he takes it back to Ophrah, and he sets it up there. How do you set up an ephod so that people might whore after it? Well, somehow you have to get it to be displayed, right? You want to display this thing. So you set up some way to display it. You want to know what's in my head with that? You set up a mannequin. In our day, if you want to display you know, somebody's significant dress from history or something like that, you set up a mannequin. Well, imagine that. He sets up a mannequin, puts the ephod over it. And lo and behold, people come and whore after that. Why? Because they're used to whoring after images. That's what you do in Canaanite religion. And so it becomes a snare to Gideon and to his family and to all of Israel. And if there's any doubt that over time the mannequin takes on personality, personhood, godhood, it becomes deified in and of itself. If there's any doubt, it's removed once Gideon dies. Because once Gideon dies, what we read is that Israel turned again and whored, obviously same idea, after the Baals and made baal Berith their god. baal Berith, Baal of the Covenant. Baal of the Covenant, probably this Baal dressed in the ephod here that Gideon had set up, becomes the object of the worship of the Israelites. And so, in an awful irony, the localized Baal worship of his father becomes, under Gideon, a nationalized form of Baal worship and idolatry impurity in worship. And so Gideon may be the leader we've got, but he is an enigma. Trent Butler writes this, Gideon then, the man called to live as a heroic warrior in God's presence, proves an enigma to himself, his nation, and to us. Daniel Block says this, In the person of Gideon... The narrator recognizes the schizophrenic nature of Israel's spiritual personality. On the one hand, she treasures treasures her call to be God's covenant people. On the other, she cannot resist the allurements of the prevailing Canaanite culture. In death, Baal bests Jeroboam. Remember that? That was the name that he had been given by, by his father. Let Baal contend with him. Well, Baal contends and Baal bests him at the death of Gideon as Israel whores after. So if, he, if he's the leader we've got, who's the leader we need? Well, inverting, inverting Gideon's example, we need a leader who is prudent, who is humble, who is pure. and the Old Testament, has as one of its main themes a millennia-long search, a beating of the bushes, trying to find one of the sons of men who will meet those categories, who will be for the people of God a deliverer because, because they're prudent, they're wise, they're humble, and they're pure, someone who fits the bill. We get close a couple of times, we approximate it, Moses, a humble man. Solomon, wisest of men. David, a man after God's own heart. We get close, but we're always disappointed in those guys at the end. And so we get a summary of this. And you have to open up your Bibles here with me, or you can just go in an abbreviated form to the front of your bulletin. Isaiah 59. After describing sin for 15 verses, then we get this conclusion. Verse 15b, second part of it. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So a millennia-long search of someone who fits the bill for an actual ruler who will embody these things comes up empty. And the Lord is displeased that there is no one. But we're not left there, because what then takes place is the whole basis of our salvation. And it is that God says, I will need to become that. I will need to become the deliverer of the people, the one who will embody these things, the one who will be prudent, the one who will be humble, and the one who will be pure in worship. And so his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He didn't put on a golden ephod over top of him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, he will repay. He will not be simply vindictive. He will not be simply mean-spirited but he will judge justly because he will judge us according to the deeds that we have done, and he has perfect knowledge of what those things are. And so, they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. Do you see the difference? He won't exalt his own name, The one who comes in the name of the Lord will exalt the name of the Lord, will exalt the glory of the Lord. And so the Redeemer comes to Zion. The Messiah comes, the anointed one. Jesus comes, and he comes with prudence. He is able to judge with perfect justice and with mercy. He's able to embrace humility so that the glory of his Father might be seen. Father, glorify your name. And Jesus embraces purity. Purity in his life, purity in his worship. And so when he is contending, when he's in the lists and battling against Satan, he is able to say, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. None of this Baal stuff. Only the Lord your God, no matter what you tempt me with. Brothers and sisters, let us understand then the scriptures. Gideon was used by God to accomplish God's will. Gideon had faith in an incredibly bleak and dark time of history. But eventually Gideon becomes a contrast by which we see the brightness and the clarity of King Jesus. And King Jesus doesn't come and lift up an ephod. He comes and allows himself to be lifted up. And in death, bests. Baal, Beelzebub, Satan, the devil, in death bests him. He is who we need to rule over us. But we've got to take one more step, and I want to take it quickly. The grace of Jesus Christ is not only for us a forgiving grace, it is also gloriously and wondrously transformative I don't want us to walk away from this with just a binary thing here. Gideon, people, bad. Jesus, good. Okay? That, that's true. Okay, There is a level in which that is true. But there is more to the story than that, Just than just Gideon, bad. Jesus, good. Because the idea that is embedded in, in again, going back to Isaiah 59, is that when this glorious king comes... He's going to be clothed in the Spirit, just like Gideon was clothed in the Spirit, and he will produce offspring that are likewise clothed in the Spirit. At the very beginning of Judges, I said what we need to stop this generational decay that takes place is a son who follows the will of God. And that's what we have in Christ. A son who follows the will of God, who is able to reproduce offspring who are like him, filled with the Spirit of God. And thus able to be conformed unto the image. The answer, you know, you don't look at a story like Gideon and go, all right, well, let's sin the more that grace may abound. That's not where it goes. It, It goes to transformation as well. So we should be people who say Jesus is king. Rule over us, King Jesus, as we are pursuing and as we are growing in wisdom, prudence, in humility, and in purity. People who appropriately Submit to godly leadership when that leadership is so characterized and seeking to lead them into exactly those same things, to call Jesus the king. Who should we vote for? Uh, you don't have to turn with me. I'll, uh, I'll turn here. Who should we vote for? Hear qualifi- these qualifications in light of the backdrop of Gideon. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive and not naming them Abimelech. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. That's what happened to Gideon. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Think about who you nominate. Think about who you vote for. Vote for them according to the qualifications that God has set forth in someone who would, under Jesus, rule over us. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and amongst the great cloud of witnesses who surround us is Gideon. Gideon, saying to us now with perfect clarity, let Jesus rule over you. Let him rule over you as you have opportunities to follow, as you have opportunities to lead. Let him rule over you for he is gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's what Gideon would say to us. And in Him, even though I wasn't the best example of the world, I was was trying, I was striving after it, in Him, grow in prudence in wisdom. Grow in humility. And grow in purity as we serve Him. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may exalt you and allow you to share in the glory that belongs to King Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words, and we pray that you would help them to reside deep in our hearts and in our minds as we seek to serve you. Jesus, thank you for being such a great king and a great savior. Amen.